Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is June 2nd, 2022. As always, I'm talking to you from the American city of San Francisco on the west coast of the United States. On June 2nd, things don't look so great. I have to admit, if I was a doctor looking at America, things don't look too healthy. Numerable, too many mass murders. Not that any mass murder is 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 acceptable. So many mass murders, they barely get in the news these days. Inflation, uncertainty, division, perhaps even civil war. So what is the state of America politically, culturally in June, early June 2022? One of my... Favorite people who have been on the show is an old friend, Pete Weiner. Uh, he's a, a Republican, but an outspoken critic of Trump. He writes regularly for The Atlantic and The New York Times. And I think he's one of the most, um, one of the most dignified and responsible moral voices in America. So I'm going to ask him that really unfair question. He's talking to me from McLean, Virginia. Pete, you're a doctor. What would you say about America on June 2nd, 2022? It's nice to be with you, Andrew. Uh, what I would say is that we're in a perilous state. Um, and I think the situation's getting um, worse, um, not better. Uh, it's, uh, it, it's, it's not necessarily a, a uh, lethal state. Um, this is a country with enormous uh, resources, tremendous capacity for self-renewal. We've had other difficult times, worse times in the country. But for some of the reasons you just touched on, um, this, is, this is a hard moment for the country. It seems to be splitting um, apart. And our political culture and our civic culture is about as bad as it's been in, in, uh, in my lifetime. So I think we're, we're, uh, we're in a tough, tough place right now. During the Trump uh, era, Pete, um, you were one of the most uh, outspoken, unambiguously outspoken critics of, of, of Donald Trump from the Republican Party. You're an old, yeah, you, you're much experienced in Republican politics. You work for various Republican administrations. Uh, my sense, and maybe correct me if I'm wrong, is your critique of Trump was a moral one and a religious one. Would it be fair to say now we're in a post-Trump America? Maybe he'll come back. Maybe he's there in the background. But we can't keep on, either from left or right, blaming everything on Donald T. Trump yeah, I think that's that's fair. Indeed, I you know my critique of Trump, which which was moral but also philosophical, and and there were there were several elements to it to, that we can get into. I do think it's important to, to recognize that you know Trump didn't appear ex nihilo. He didn't come out of nowhere. Um, he won in twenty sixteen in a field of very impressive Republicans. And in any other time or, uh, or era, he would have had no chance and no right to be the Republican nominee. But in this case, he won anyone easily. And that meant that the conditions were such that it allowed someone like Donald Trump uh, to, to uh, win the nomination and then win the presidency. Uh, and I, I agree in, in some respects, maybe we're in a post-Trump world in, in the sense that he's no longer president. Um, but his influence um, on, on our culture and our politics 
particularly in the Republican Party, is profound. So I would say it's a, the Republican Party um, is a Trumpist party. It's, it's a MAGA world, uh, as they say in this country, for Make America Great Again. And so his imprints uh, and his fingerprints are all over the Republican Party and therefore all over our, uh, our politics. But he, as a figure, is certainly receding in his influence. Now, that may change if he if he runs in 2024, wins the nomination. Certainly, if he wins the presidency, we're in a different ballgame again. But I think your point is a is a fair one. This is not just about Donald Trump. It's about things that are deeper uh, and broader than Donald Trump. Your last book, Pete, uh, from last year, um, The Death of Politics, How to Heal Our Frayed Republic After Trump. So it was a post-Trump book, one of the first post-Trump books, very well received, sold very well, um, very interesting book. Um, what do you mean by the death of politics? And is that the core sickness with America in 2022? I'm not sure if it's the core sickness, but it is one of the sicknesses of um, of America uh, in the, in this era. What I meant by the death of politics is that there was something about the Trump era uh, which was um, destroying politics um, as as we've understood it and as it needs to be understood. I'm a person, Andrew, who um, when I first got interested in politics, which is just a young person, really in in, in high school. Um, and then in college and, and my entire career has been involved in politics. Um, and I got involved in politics for a variety of reasons. But one of the reasons is I thought it mattered a lot. Um, and I feel like politics at the end of the day um, is about important matters. It's about justice. Now, that's not all it's about. I'm, I'm, I'm experienced. I don't think I'm naive. I know there are all sorts of elements to politics. There are dark underbellies to it, like there are dark underbellies to every profession because you know, professions and institutions are occupied by human beings who are fallen creatures. But politics matters. Um, if you do politics well, it can lead to human flourishing. And if you do politics poorly, uh, it can lead uh, to tremendous human costs and damage and ruin. Um, and we see that all the time um, today and throughout throughout history. And I felt like Trump and the Trump movement was a particular attack um, on politics there was a cruelty uh, to it. There was a dishonesty to it and an assault on truth, um, an effort to not, not just to lie, but to annihilate truth as concept that I thought was very, very damaging at the time. I think that that's played out um, as, as, I, as I thought it would. And I think a lot of repair has to go, uh, go on. Pete, you're one of the few people in America today, particularly with uh, gigs at the New York Times and the Atlantic who can talk straight faced about us being fallen creatures. This is part, I think, of your theology. How central in your view is the notion of us as fallen creatures with the foundations of American democracy? Because I'm guessing that many of the the founders of American democracy, particularly I think Madison, saw us as you do as fallen creatures and see American democracy both as a, I guess, in a way as a defense, but also a celebration of us as fallen creatures. Yeah, that's a very good articulation. And I entirely agree with you. I mean, that's certainly the view of the founders. And I would say Madison in particular, but but not, not only him. I think the way to understand our system of government is with the, the, the presupposition that they had, which is that we're fallible and flawed 
human beings, but also human beings capable of virtue. I mean, there's there. It's not one or the other. It's this. It's this combination. This mix of virtue and vice. Um, that is true of every society and really of every human human heart. And I think what the founders tried to do in their design of the American Constitution through the separation of powers, the checks and balances, was to diffuse uh, power, to accept human nature as it was, and to try and figure out how can we channel it in a way that leads, gives you the best chance to lead to human human flourishing. And of course, the other thing that that they understood is they they believed in republican government not not really just democracy so if you if you read the founders one of their main concerns maybe their main concern well their main concern was the centralization of power and 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 that demagogues and dictators could could take over but related to that was this concern of uh mobs mob passion potentially mob violence and that you had to set up a system of government um, that, uh, in a sense, uh, filtered that through, um, and that's that's why we have the the kind of government that uh, that we do. And it wasn't just the founders. If you read uh, Lincoln, his Young Men's Lyceum speech, I think Lincoln was 28 at the time. I think he, he gave that speech in 1838. It was on this this concern about about mob violence. So that's something that has occupied the best political thinkers in American history, and I think occupied some of the best thinkers and philosophers um, that for periods that predated um, America. And that is that notion that, uh, that, you know, we have, we are uh, people whose passions can be inflamed. And when that happens, uh, a lot of, a lot of harm can come from it. Pete, you wrote a very influential essay with another former keen on guest, Jonathan Rausch, arguing and, and Rausch like you is, I guess, I don't know, he's a centrist, but certainly probably slightly more to the, the right than the left. But you both argued in this New York Times piece from January of this year that uh, we should be more fearful of what's happening on the right in American politics than on the left, although you're also fearful of what's happening on the left. Is what's happening both in the Republican Party, on the right of the Republican Party, the Trumpist wing of the Republican Party, and the so-called woke wing of the Democratic Party, is it the thing that the founders most feared? Uh, I think so. It certainly would be, it would be very, very high up there. I mean, because I, the way that I view it, I think John does as well, is it's a kind of pincer movement against liberal democracy, classical liberalism. Um, and those movements in different ways are fundamentally illiberal. And the founders uh, designed a, a, a system of government that believed, you know, they were shaped obviously by the Enlightenment and they had a certain view of, of, of classical, classical liberalism. So, yeah, I think that, that they did on those grounds, that is illiberalism uh, in some, some deep sense, but also what we were talking about earlier, which was these inflamed emotions um, and both, and there's almost a totalitarian or quasi-totalitarian mindset on both the left and the um, and the right. And then on top of all of that is um, this deep antipathy and hatred for the other side. Um, so there's not there's not a sense. Look, we have disagreements, but we're fellow citizens. Um, it's it's a sense that the other side really wants to destroy us. And but Pete, what's defeated. wrong with emotions? Uh, we had the Harvard law <clears throat> professor Randy Kennedy on the show. We had him a couple of times. He wrote a book <clears throat> suggesting that we should think rather than be sort of than act thoughtless <clears throat> without thought. 
But there are many people, many uh, indeed critics of his on the left within the African-American community who are defined and driven by their sense of injustice, perhaps of racism. Why do very thoughtful people like you and Kennedy and many other traditional liberals, why are you so ambivalent and suspicion of passion? Well, it's um, I, I should clarify if, if I misstated it. I'm actually not um, critical of emotions or or passion per se. I would say I'm I'm worried about inflamed emotions and inflamed passions. Uh, they're very different things. Um, I'm I'm actually very much of the school that so much of what drives human beings and constitutes human life is driven by emotions and predilections. I mean, in that sense, John Haidt, the social psychologist at, at NYU who, who wrote The Righteous Mind mm. uh, and, and others, uh, uses this analogy uh, of, of an elephant and a rider. And we think that rationality and reason sort of, uh, is, is driving the elephant. And in fact, the, the elephant being the emotions and the, and the passions. And in fact, the elephant sort of goes where it wants and the rider goes along for, 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 the, for the ride. So I think an awful lot of what we do, including in politics, is driven at a, at a, at a subconscious level uh, in a sort of transrational way that it drives an awful lot of how we think and how we act in theology and in politics. And, and so I wouldn't for a moment underestimate that or even say that that is in any way inferior to 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 reason because i do think that that the emotions rightly understood and, and rightly channeled are very very powerful very important can be very wise things no what i'm talking about is the dangers of of when those emotions and passions are inflamed when demagogues can take over and that's just very tricky um you know it's er everything in moderation everything within within uh within uh, reason. And you're quite right. People, some of the greatest mo moments in American history and world history have been people who have been um, driven by powerful emotions to advance justice or to fight injustice. And that matters a lot. And some of my heroes throughout history are, uh, would fall into that, um, into that category. You mentioned Jonathan Haidt. He had an interesting new piece in the Atlantic. He writes for them as you do about this Tower of Babel and the dumbness he argues is unique uh, in 2022. America is dumber than it's ever been. Seems like a lot of very serious, erudite, <laughs> responsible guys, and they tend to be men, although there are women like Anne Applebaum, like yourself, Jonathan Haidt, Francis Fukuyama, who was on the show last week, they're all saying the same thing. And yet, is anything changing, Pete? Do you think that the the Wayner, Fukuyama, hate message is getting through at all? Or, or, or if it isn't, what needs to change? You're it's our good, moral conscience. That's why you're on the show. It's, it's a good question. You know, I think that the message is getting through uh, into, in some places um, at, at, at some times. And I, and I don't think that's necessarily by the power of the messenger, although that, that matters. I mean, certainly when you're talking about Jonathan, Haidt and, and, and Frank Fukuyama and, and Applebaum and, and Jonathan Rausch and these other people. I mean, they're very, very intelligent and they write in a way and speak in a way where I think they can be they can be heard. But often uh, what we learn from history is it's not just the people who are making the arguments. 
but the conditions and the circumstances in which they're making it and and will their arguments be heard will their arguments be received i suppose you could look at somebody like a churchill right when he was warning about the nazi menace and he was right about that in retrospect but at the time he was ignored and and, and was was a pariah was a, was a, was an outcast i do think that there are conditions in this country now in which there are an awful lot of people um that uh um probably a majority of Americans that understand something is not going well, that they're, they're unsettled. They're, there's a di- feeling of, of disquietness. Um, and they know that we're, we're kind of off the rails and people are searching around for why that's the case and what can be done about it. Uh, I've used the analogy before the COVID pandemic that sometimes uh, viruses create their own antibodies and sometimes in the life of a country, like in the life of an individual, when there are certain qualities, virtues, characteristics uh, that make for a humane life, you take them for granted. And when they're stripped away from you, you understand why they matter and you're willing to fight for them. And I do think that there is a kind of exhausted majority, is what some, some social psychologists refer to it, that want to try and get us back on, on track. Um, but having said that, um, Sometimes a, a, an inspirited minority of voices, zealots, uh, can determine the course of a country, even if they don't represent the majority of a country. So what you have to do is you have to inspire people to, to, to stand up and fight for, for, for what's right. I think some of that's going on. But on the other hand, as we were talking about earlier, this country also seems to be blowing apart in, in some deep and powerful ways. And so I think it's a jump ball right now. But last thing I'll say on this is, uh, you know, in terms of the voices that are that are out there, um, all you can do is be faithful to what you believe is is right and true and good. You can't make success the condition of speaking out. You know, I mean, I'd rather be successful and faithful, but that's not always the case. But you can be faithful. And I do think it's important that voices speak out like some of the ones that you that you mentioned and a lot of others. Um, do do um, speak in the way that they are and be faithful to, to what, what what's true and good and uh, and right in human life. Pete, you're a, a man of faith, both in a, a secular and a religious sense. You're a senior fellow at the Trinity Forum. You've done a lot of writing about religion. Many of the, <clears throat> the great observers of America from Tocqueville onwards have come here and seen religion <clears throat> as the foundations of democracy and decency. A lot of your recent writing has been about the crisis in the American church. The last piece uh, you put in the Atlantic, you, you published in the Atlantic, is about the Southern Baptist Convention. The headline was "No Atheist Has Done This Much Damage to the Christian Church." To what extent? And I know these are hard questions to answer because there are no full answers. But to what extent is the crisis in something like? the Southern Baptist Convention? Is it a, a, a symptom or a cause of the rottenness with America? I think it's both. I think it's both. I, I think that um, some of the maladies, some of the pathologies of the broader American society have found their way into the American church. Um, and it's playing out there. Um, it's playing out in a different way because it's, it, it's a church. So it has the veneer of faith um, and a certain kind of, um, you know, vocabulary that, that accompanies it. Um, but I also think that, uh, that in many cases, not in all cases, but in many cases, the American church um, and, and the conduct of, of Christians in public life are making things considerably worse um, than, they, than they, uh, they would otherwise 
um, be. Um, and so I, I think both is happening. Um, and you're quite right. I mean, back to the founders, almost to a person, whether they were themselves personally religious or not, they believed religion was the was the foundation of morality and was central for this country, that it was that it was the, the fountainhead of civic civic virtue. Um, that 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 may well have been right. But um, as a person of the Christian faith and, and that's central to, to my life, um, I can't ignore what's what's unfolding before my eyes. And it's not just the Southern Baptist Convention with a series of sexual abuse scandals that has been uncovered in a recent report. This goes back 20, 20 years. And in a way, it mirrors what happened with, a, in many respects, with that, what happened with the Catholic Church. But there have been extremely important ministries, Ravi Zacharias ministry, one of the most important ones in, 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 the, uh, in the world, the English-speaking world. He was brought down by scandal. Uh, some of the most important contemporary Christian rock groups like Hillsong United from, from Australia, but they have churches in America that's been been waylaid by by scandals. You saw how the white evangelical church were really the vanguard for Donald Trump defending him, not just voting for him, but justifying his cruelty, his crudity, celebrating it. A friend of mine, uh, Russell Moore, has a withering phrase, but I think it, it, it's true for a lot of people of the Christian faith who proclaim uh, that, that, that Jesus would be the center of their life, core to their identity. And and Russell says, for a lot of people, Jesus is a hood ornament. Um, and I think that's right. I think, um, just to stay on this one, one more moment, um, what I've learned, it's not new, but I think it's more vivid to me than it has been in the past, which is a lot of people who would honestly say that faith is central to, their to who they are, to their core identity. It turns out that that's not really quite the case. There are other things that they're not nearly as aware of, culture, politics, psychology that form um, their their core identity and faith is grafted onto it uh, and then it's used to justify these these views that they would have had had without their faith so it's 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 a complicated set of uh, dynamics that are going on but it's uh, for a person of the Christian faith like myself it's it's a painful period particularly painful uh, you know for an outsider like myself when I read your your piece about the Southern Baptist Convention, and everyone should read it. I mean, it only confirmed for me, perhaps as an atheist, maybe a dangerous atheist, that it just confirmed that so many of these people in these uh, new churches are simply hucksters and opportunists. I mean, the fact that Trump would have had the nerve and the success to go away with associating himself with these people simply reflects the fundamental moral bankruptcy of, of, of these churches. I mean, what do serious people of religious faith, Keith, what, what do you guys need to do to rebuild religion in America, to make it again the foundations of morality and democracy? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. And a lot of people of faith are really pondering it and thinking seriously um, about it. I understand your point. I mean, if I were a person who was not a Christian or if I was an atheist, um, I draw the same conclusion that that uh, that, that, that you do. Um, I, you know, I, there are a lot of different things that can go on. I think, you know, to use a term of, of that's that's often used within Christianity, but catechesis, that is the, the, the training and shaping of the hearts and the sensibilities of, of people. Obviously, there ha people have to look seriously at that. I think what I've heard from an awful lot of pastors, um, Andrew, is um, 
they say that, you know, uh, Fox News, talk radio, a, lo a lot of the people that are coming to our churches are imbibing that 15, 20 hours or more a week. And we get them for an hour and a half, you know, on a Sunday, maybe if we're lucky, they go to Sundays, you know, a, an adult education class. Maybe they're part of a Bible study every other week, something like that. So um, the, the shaping of the sensibilities that's going on is, is they're just being overwhelmed right now. And the churches have to figure out how, how to do it. I just say on a deeper level, and this would just be in the language of people of faith. So it wouldn't mean as much to you and, and, listeners and who, who aren't people of faith, but it is the, the affections of the heart. I mean, I, I guess I would say as, as a person of the Christian faith, if that sort of intimacy or the affections of the heart for, for, for Jesus is broken and what you're left with is the construct of religion, the rules of religion, it's probably worse than not having anything at all because what it can do is propel some of the worst qualities that we've seen throughout history when it comes to religion, which is judgmentalism, self-righteousness, um, and, uh, and a sense of absolute certitude. Uh, and, and it frames discussions and debates as the children of light against the children of darkness. That's often where religion can push people. And you need something within faith to counterbalance, more than counterbalance that. And if you shut that off, or if that doesn't exist, then you're in for a, a, a world of hurt. And that's what we're, what we're seeing. The last thing I'll say about, about this too, I just, it's important to say because um, uh, while I entirely agree with your critique about a lot of these people being, being frauds and hucksters and really doing tremendous damage to the Christian witness, it also needs to be said that there's millions and millions of people who uh, are faithful and are doing wonderful and lovely things in the world. They are ministers of reconciliation, agents of healing, They've been involved in my life at times of pain and of grief uh, and, and of hurt um, and many others, and they just don't get nearly the, the, the attention. So it's, it's more complicated uh, than we sometimes say. But having said that, um, I'm speaking out a, a, against it. I think other people who are Christian leaders should speak out um, about these, these, these scandals and this, this ruin that's happening. Yeah, I would think they would be particularly angry, particularly hurt. We just had a really interesting piece recently, Pete, about debating abortion. I'm not sure if that's uh, uh, an Ill illogical two words, debating uh, abortion, um, given how trenchantly both sides seem to take this. Could abortion, though, offer an opportunity for the two Americans, the, the two responsible Americas? the two moral Americas to, to start talking again, because whether you like it or not, it's a deeply theological issue, abortion. And on what, whichever side of the, the barricade you stand, how could abortion bring us together or the debate about abortion rather than only inflame the tensions and deepen the, the dislikes, the hatred in America? Yeah, I think the way it could, I don't think this is how it's going to play out, but the way it could is that, to me, the issue of abortion, as I explained in that Atlantic essay, is a tremendously complicated moral question. It, it touches on issues of, of faith and theology. It touches on issues of, of, of science uh, and life and, and rights and when do certain rights in here. So it's it's a whole overlay of, of different 
different things. And I think where it's led me to is a kind of uh, epistemic humility, uh, a sense that every side has problems, whether you're pro-life or pro-choice, uh, or if you're like in my case, someone on a continuum. Um, so, for, you know, my view is that um, that uh, moments after conception, what you're talking about with with at that moment is not the same thing as a two year old child or even what you're talking about in the seventh or eighth month of the pregnancy. The trouble is, where where do you make those those uh, judgments? Uh, what are the inflection points? What are the moral and and even legal inflection points? Is it viability? Is it the pain of the child? Is it dreams? Um, is it the you know development of certain organs, uh, or does any of that matter at all? Um, so to me, these are just really really complicated questions. And when you're dealing with something with that degree of complexity moral philosophical complexity it ought to argue in my estimation for a kind of humility um, not not certitude and and some understanding uh for the other side to 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 have some appreciation for why they believe what they what they believe so that, that's how i would hope it would work its its way out um but i think given the current political climate that we have in this country that's not going to be how it's going to play itself out you talk about epistemic humility. You, you're clearly trying to practice this. And I think for people in the conservative Republican Party, you are exhibit A of epistemic humility. What can progressives do to meet you in the middle, Pete? That's a good, that's a good question. Um, you know, I think that that's a quality. Um, I don't know how much I have it. It's a quality I respect in other in other people. It's complicated because epistemic humility is important, but also having deep principles on important matters that that is relevant as 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 well. They go together, so, though, don't they? I think so. I think so. You know, people will draw. Of course, people will draw the line at different uh, at different points. I think that's sometimes where the confusion. Um, you know, comes comes into into uh, into play, but I, I'd say with progressives, it would be something similar. Which is, I think, all of us need to strive to try and understand, just as a baseline, just to to try and understand the other side a little bit better. The people that we disagree with, to listen to the those people, to listen to their stories, um, to listen so you you hear what they say rather than just to refute what they say. Um, I've tried to do it. I've done it imperfectly with pro-Trump people, where I basically said, tell me about why you believe what you believe. I've even asked people what you think is wrong with what I believe. What do you think that I'm that I'm missing? And I do think as a general matter, what this country could use a lot more of is is a kind of conversation in which we debate not for victory, but for truth. And uh, that is that I mean, you know, if you took a step back, I think almost all of us would say, we want to get closer to some approximation of what the truth and reality of things are, to know more than we than than we did, um, to, to learn to be more enlightened, and what that often requires is is a conversation with people with whom you disagree, who can point out your own weaknesses and your own blind spots, and you can do the same thing. You take in new evidence, um, you adjust your views according to what what uh, what experience shows. I think that's a deeply conservative. Um, uh, sensibility, by the way. Um, and 
Um, and you, you know, you take step by step and, and they're not, they're not always clean steps. They're not always large steps, but it is a step-by-step -step process. And hopefully you, you get a little bit closer, um, to, to the truth of things. You get a little bit closer to, to, to justice. I do think that there's an attitude on progressives that I've seen, and this is increasing. And this is what John, John Roush and I wrote in the New York times. It's a kind of quasi totalitarian mindset that really wants to squash debate. Um, that that feels like if you disagree with me uh, on any of a range of issues, you're somehow morally defective and you ought to be shut down. And I just don't think that's that's the wise place to go. Uh, it certainly isn't. Uh, Pete, I, I was in Munich last week. I had breakfast with Moises Naim, the expert on power, author of The Revenge of Power, The End of Power. One point over breakfast, he, he turned to me almost like a doctor. He said, you know, Trump's going to get reelected in 2024. And there was a pause and I wasn't quite sure what to say. I, my sense is he's probably right. What's your sense as an insider within the Republican Party? What's the likelihood of, 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 of Trump becoming president again in 2024? I don't know if he's likely, but but he's he's got a real he's got a real shot. The, the reason I'm, I'm hesitant about it is I'd say several several factors that we just don't don't know. The first is that Trump may be beatable in a, in a primary. He's, he would go in, he would be the favorite for sure, but he also has weaknesses. We see it in, in, in polling information. And I do think that his sociopathy is at this point getting in his way, by which I mean his, in this particular case, his absolute obsession with a 2020 election, even among most of his supporters, that is not a cutting edge issue. And I don't think he can he can run in 2024 making that supremus into Paris among among his his issues. You've got people like DeSantis and others, I think, who are now not afraid to take him on. So he may not get the nomination, uh, but he can't be dismissed. I think the other issue that that one has to take in mind or consider is the Democratic Party. I would at this point be maybe surprised if Joe Biden were the nominee. I mean, he's going to be 82 in 2024. He looks old. Often he acts old. To be polite, and, he looks old. So who, who's going to replace him? Buttigieg? Uh, I don't know. I mean, you know, uh, it's I, I think it would be wide open. And Kamala Harris is the vice president. So she would have some claim to it, but she's not shown herself to be particularly impressive at this at this uh, at this point a lot of a lot of missteps Pete Buttigieg is a very talented political person um, so he would be in the mix there may be governors you know that that, that may pop up so I, I just think it's going to be very very chaotic and and honestly and I also think we're kind of in a whirlpool in this country in terms of our political culture I just think it's very hard to get focused and to see things. I think they're shifting so dramatically. Um, and, and I, I mean, this is almost week to week and month to month, let alone, you know, looking a couple, couple of years out. But that said, if, if you were just to say, where are we right now? I would say that, that um, Joe Biden is at a very low point uh, or is at a low point. He's quite weak. Um, the storm clouds are gathering in terms of the economy, the inflation, and they're, Democrats are going to be hurt and they're going to lose power in the midterm, certainly in the House, probably perhaps in the Senate. Um, and, um, you know, so there's going to there it's going to be a weak incumbent, I think, or incumbent party. But Trump has a lot of baggage. Uh, and um, so you could look at two very weak candidates or two very weak parties going uh, going at it. But one of them's got to win. 
Yeah, you you wrote an interesting piece in the Atlantic recently about Biden undermining faith in in elections. I think in many ways Biden is a more interesting historical figure than Trump himself. But that's another story. Finally, Pete, you know America's always looked inwards for its morality, maybe to the church, maybe to its sense of self. What about looking externally if America is to be reborn? You wrote an interesting piece in the Atlantic about. Ukrainians shaking America out of its, or Americans out of their cynicism. Can America be reborn from being inspired by perhaps what's happening in Ukraine? Uh, and is and in that sense, is 21st century America different from the first two centuries of the Republic? Well, it's different for sure. Um, it can be revivified, I think. Um, and the Ukraine did, I, I thought it was really interesting what the Ukrainian experience in Zelensky has done. It, it sent almost a kind of an electric shock in this country and around the world, because I do still believe that when you see honor um, and, and courage embodied in certain individuals like you do in Zelensky and the Ukrainian people, that still has the capacity to stir the human heart um, and to lift people's vision and 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 uh, and and eyes to the hills above, as the psalmist says, and so I think that exists because I think that's part of what it means to be human. Human too, um, as we were talking about before. It's you know this is a complicated complicated mix, um, but we can still summon people to 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 great moments uh, and to and to stand up um, against great challenges and to advance great great causes. Um, and I, I hope this country can do it again. It's 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 history is pretty impressive. It's a it's a it's a mixed history. Uh, we've got some re really ugly stains on it, but it's a, it's a glorious history in some ways, too. Um, but all you can do is what you can do and try and stir people again to 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 uh, to what's right. Um, and and um, and hope that that can uh, that can carry uh, carry the day. Um, but it's it. That's always an open question, right? It's, it's an open question in an individual life. It's an open question in the um, in the life of uh, of a nation. But we this is a free country, so we get to write the chapters um, that uh, ahead, uh, and whether they're going to be um, hopeful ones or or dark ones is going to be largely up to uh, us. We we can't blame it on anybody else.